pleasure to meet you today and to look at God's Word together. Well, it's customary for us to think about resolutions. What do you want to do in 2020? Some of us maybe uh, lose some weight, spend more time with family, maybe have some financial goals, you know, spend less, save more. And it's good. I think it's good to reflect on our priorities. But, you know, if you pull back a bit and take a broad view, I think it actually raises some difficult questions. Like, what's truly important? What matters? In the end, what really matters? We're going to take a rather unconventional approach to this New Year resolution question of what's important and what do we want by looking at Ecclesiastes, as we just had read. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is to show that everything is meaningless. Everything is empty, futile. It doesn't matter. Solomon says he had it all. He had wealth and power and fame and women and women and women, lots of women. He had, even had wisdom. And he said he withheld nothing from himself. He had the means and the opportunity to pursue it all, enjoy it all, and he gives us his conclusion that none of it was worth it. None of it satisfied. Meaning all the New Year's resolutions you might have, nah, meaningless is what he'd probably say. Well, I want to zoom in as we, again, just had heard on this passage in Ecclesiastes that focuses on money, but I find it to be pretty representative of the theme and message of Ecclesiastes, and I think you'll recognize perhaps some of the echoes of that. Well, I think in our, most of us, at least in our heads, we all know that money isn't going to give us happiness. We live in a part of the country where you see lots of people with lots of money who aren't always very happy, and that's certainly not something unusual for a preacher to say, that money does not satisfy but I think a lot of us agree with Zig Ziglar who says, money won't make you happy, but everybody wants to find out for themselves, you know? Hey, let me give it a try. I would like to just find out for myself because the truth is money sure would help, wouldn't it? It would solve some problems. It would open up some nice options. I mean, certainly wouldn't hurt. And I don't know in Christian circles if we would be so brazen about it, but truth of the matter is, I think, yeah, we want money. <laughs> I want money. I mean, there are other things that I want as well, but money is definitely part of that picture. Sure, we want money. Solomon tells us that pursuing money is not going to give us what we think it'll give us. Been there, done that, and he says... It's a dead-end road, and he gives us four reasons for why he says that. First, he says, money creates, wealth creates headaches. Chapter 5, 11 and 13, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Basically saying, the more money you have, the more problems you have, the more obligations, the more troubles. More wealth means more taxes, 
more work trying to protect and manage all that wealth. When you didn't have much, you didn't have to worry about protecting it. Now you've got stuff to worry about. More wealth means more knocks on the door, more people wanting a piece of the pie. There are stories of lottery winners who then say how, how distrustful and lonely they've become. One lottery winner writes about how there are people who loved her, but, quote, turned into vampires. Money can also mean you got to do a lot of work taking care of all the stuff you now have in contrast to the simple life. Graham Hill had started an internet startup company that he sold for more money than he thought he would ever earn in a lifetime, though he was still in his 20s. So what's a young guy to do with all that money? He bought a big house, filled it with lots of nice things, and then later he describes his life in this little New York Times article, also on a TED Talk, and he says this, my life was unnecessarily complicated. There were lawns to mow, gutters to clean, floors to vacuum, roommates to manage. It seemed nuts to have such a big, empty house. A car to insure, wash, refuel, repair, and register. And tech to set up and keep working. My house and my things were my new employers for a job I had never applied for. Keeps you busy. All that stuff you got to take care of. Wealth brings its troubles and obligations. And so, actually, Ecclesiastes says, the rich, they don't sleep as well. Verse 12. They don't sleep as well. Wealth creates headaches. Number two, we don't get to keep it. In chapter 5, 13 to 17, he gives a scenario of a man who toils and works to save up money with all the sacrifice that that involves. And then suddenly he loses it in a bad venture. Maybe it was a bad investment. Maybe the stock market crashed, the housing market. I don't know. Maybe his business went under. Whatever it is, he suddenly loses all his money. And now he's broke. He has a son, but he has nothing to give his son. And Ecclesiastes Solomon here says, wealth has hurt him twice. It has hurt him in all the striving and toil to, to gain it. And then, secondly, in the pain of now having lost it all. And then the teacher says, he naked he came, naked he'll go. For all that toil and suffering, he has nothing. And that tragedy, we recognize, is true, even if he hadn't lost his money. That we all will die naked. No one takes anything with them. In the end, it doesn't matter and Solomon finds this to be the great absurdity of life. It doesn't matter. We work so hard and try to gain so much. But in the end, in the end, we don't keep anything. We spend our lives trying to gain what we cannot keep. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, wise or foolish, powerful or powerless, famous, not so famous. In the end, it doesn't matter. We don't keep it. Number three, we don't get to enjoy it. In chapter six, Solomon then gives another scenario where there's another rich man, and he again loses what he has, 
but instead of being lost to a bad venture, this time it goes to a stranger. He toils, but somebody else gets to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And the problem that Solomon points on into here is not so much that it went to a stranger, but that this person never got to enjoy the wealth that he had. He said, that's, that's vanity. Notice verse 2. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Solomon's saying there's a difference between having wealth and then the ability and opportunity to enjoy that wealth. That these are gifts from God, but they are separate things. It's possible to have wealth and not enjoy it. That these are separate. One author put it, satisfaction is sold separately. And we notice that, right? There are some people who have a lot, and yet they complain, they grumble, they're kind of grumpy people. There are other people who have not as much, but they're so thankful. Like, they, they enjoy the things and the life that they have. Just because you have a lot doesn't mean you enjoy it. The enjoyment of it is in itself its own gift. And so the teacher points out, even if a person had lots of blessings, many kids, a long life, lots of good things, if he isn't able to enjoy it, then what was the point of all those good things? What was, it's, it's absurd. It's meaningless. It, it doesn't make sense. Vanity, vanity, vanity. To not be able to enjoy the blessings that you may have. So this is his advice. Chapter 5, 18 and 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. This is one of the few sections in Ecclesiastes where Solomon kind of takes a more positive tone, actually, because everything is like down, 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 meaningless, meaning dark, stupid, you know, why? But this is one of those few sections where he says, hey, this is good. This is good. And it's also one of these few sections where God is even mentioned. And in these two verses, he's mentioned three times. And he's basically saying, look, if you have wealth, if you have things, it would be vanity, foolish, absurd to not enjoy it. That is vanity, to not enjoy it. You have the blessings and you can't even enjoy the blessings. But what was the point of that is what he's saying. So if you have a good job, if you have a good burger, cold beer, eat up, enjoy, savor it. If you live in Southern California, enjoy the good weather. If you have a nice car, you have nice clothes, if you like golf, you like movies, enjoy. Enjoy these things. And the message isn't just enjoy what you can. Carpe diem. Hey, live for them. This is great. Solomon is pointing out that these are gifts from God. We recognize these, the blessing and the ability to enjoy the blessing, these separately are God's gifts to us. See, the beginning of wisdom and the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is to fear God. 
that God, with biblical wisdom has a Godward orientation, that we revere him, acknowledge him, we fear him. Enjoy God's good gift. So, you got a new iPhone for Christmas, you had a weekend trip to San Diego, you, you have a single origin pour over drip coffee, whatever your pleasure might be, enjoy, enjoy them. And for some of us, we'd like to end the sermon right there. Just enjoy what you have. Sure, you know, this is, it would be stupid not to. But I don't think this is where the teacher is trying to take us. Or at least, this is not where he wants us to end. Because this exhortation to enjoy what we have is in the context of a broader book, which leads to number four, it will never satisfy. The context is, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Or as Solomon says at the very beginning of the book, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So I think the teacher is saying, hey, enjoy your wealth. Enjoy the blessings you have. This is a gift of God. But in the end, this does not satisfy. This does not provide what you're ultimately looking for. In 2016, Time Magazine had a special edition um, called The Science of Happiness. And... In this article, Time said, the new science of happiness starts with a simple insight. We're never satisfied. They agree with Ecclesiastes. And then it quotes Catherine Sanderson, psychology professor at Amherst, who said, we're always thinking if we just had a little bit more money, we'd be happier. But when we get there, we're not. Dan Gilbert, psychology professor at Harvard, said, once you get basic human needs met, a lot more money doesn't make a lot more happiness. And then the article pointed out that despite the enormous increase in the standard of living for the average U.S. citizen over the last 50 years, the happiness index didn't really go up that much. A lot more wealth, a lot more blessings does not translate to more happiness. John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the world at the time, was asked how much money would be enough. He famously answered, just a little bit more. I get that. Just a little bit more. No matter how much we have. I mean, in some ways, I have more than I thought I'd have. How much do I want? Just a little bit more. <laughs> it seems like if someone keeps moving the goal line, like, and then uh, you're getting a little farther, but then it keeps moving and you'll never get there. And Solomon says, and you never will. It will never satisfy. Wealth and possessions do not give us 
the answer. You see, I think Solomon here, when he says enjoy what you have, isn't giving us an answer. He's giving us a consolation. He's saying life is meaningless. Wealth is meaningless. Enjoy what you eat. Enjoy what you drink. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your wealth. Not because this is where you will find meaning and satisfaction. Enjoy them because it would be absurd not to enjoy. It would be foolish, vain, vanity to not enjoy these things. He's saying sushi and wine are nice. Enjoy sushi and wine if that's your pleasure. God has given you the ability to enjoy these pleasures. Enjoy them. But sushi and wine are not the meaning of life. This is not the answer He is telling us, do not ask them to fill your heart. They can't. Wisdom involves recognizing their limitations. See, Ecclesiastes is pointing to a problem more than giving us an answer. It's raising a question that the rest of the Bible will then fill in for us. Because the problem Ecclesiastes is saying is, we live in an ocean of meaninglessness, vanity, vapor, but there are these little islands of pleasure in this ocean of meaninglessness. Pleasure is not the meaning of life. Pleasure is just the sweetener to the bitterness of life. So enjoy them, but don't expect them to be more than they are. When I was a kid, I loved playing in the snow. At this stage in my life, I am very happy to have mild, snowless winters. But when I was a kid, every time it snowed, it was like a holiday. It was so exciting. And I remember when I was 10 years old, there was a blizzard where I was. And I mean, snow was To me, it was like, whoa, like all the way up to here. And then uh, in the apartment that our family lived in, there were two driveways with a little plot between the driveways. And so the the two driveways would pile their snow into the middle plot. And it created a mountain. In my child's memory, it was a a mountain twice my size, twice my height. I mean, it was huge. And I dove into that thing. I burrowed tunnels, I built walls and windows, and I shoveled, and I packed, and I, I just, I had so much fun. I remember my mom said, it's dinner time, dinner time. I go, I don't want to eat dinner. I just want to play. I want to play. I want to make my, I wanted to play in my snow fort. This was so much fun. And I think the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is, hey, build your snow fort. Go ahead. Have fun. Have a blast. But in the end, it's all going to melt. It's all going to pass. It's vanity. It's vapor. It's meaningless. It doesn't really matter. Don't expect that snow fort to last. Don't expect it to matter. Don't expect it to be more than it is. Have fun. And then let it go. Let it go. Wisdom here is to not expect too much from our snow forts. Because it doesn't matter. 
in the end, it all melts. We hold it loosely. We let it go. So what do you do with this? What would it look like? Let me try to punctuate a few applications just to spell it out. What do we do? Number one, receive and enjoy the gifts. Hey, let's build some snow forts. You want to build a snowman? I don't know. How that, whatever that goes, right? Um, enjoy, enjoy them. It would be, again, absurdity, foolishness to not enjoy. And interestingly, actually, I'll confess, this is a lesson I'm learning rather late in my life because I was always the delayed gratification. You got to finish your work before you can go outside and play. But I found throughout life, Work was never done. <laughs> There's always more work to be done. And so the, when you're done work, you can go play. Um, was again, that elusive goal line. So I'm learning how to enjoy the moments. Enjoy the simple pleasures. Enjoy what you have. You don't have to delay all the parties. You don't have to delay all the celebrations. Enjoy what you have now. And as I was reflecting, I thought like, Hey, I'm going to have lunch with that pastor today, and that'll be pretty sweet. I like that. I have time to listen to music on my headphones. I like my headphones. I like my music. This was meant to be enjoyed. I'm going to, I'm going to go preach at Trinity in Orange County. I like preaching at Trinity in Orange County. This is fun. I'm going to go build my snow fort, you know. <laughs> I'm going to go have, I'm, I'm going to have that cup of coffee. I'm going to I have time to journal and reflect. Enjoy the moments. Don't just let them pass by. They were meant to be savored. They were meant to be enjoyed. It would be absurd, vanity, not to enjoy them. Number two, give thanks to the giver. That we recognize the gift and the ability to enjoy the gift that those themselves are God's gift to us, that our Heavenly Father delights to give good gifts to His children. And He gives those good gifts every day. You see, biblical wisdom smells like a grateful heart. It smells like a worshipful spirit. Number three, we learn to be content and generous. That when we recognize they're just snow forts, they're limited, in the end they don't matter, then we don't ask them to deliver what they cannot deliver. We recognize their limitations. We adjust our expectations. And if we then do not demand of these things the satisfaction that they cannot require, then we don't have to grip them so tightly. We don't have to squeeze them so desperately. We don't have to be so demanding. We don't have to get so mad when our snow forts melt. Snow forts melt. We can hold them loosely. We can take it all so much less seriously. We can be less anxious less restless, we can be more content because we're not expecting things that they can't give anyway. The truly rich are not those who have much, but those who are content with what they have because they've learned this isn't going to give me ultimately what I wanted 
anyway. And one way I'd suggest of loosening our grip on money, of of saying to money, you really cannot give me what I ultimately want. One really good way to do that is to be generous. To give your money away. It's almost like training your soul. You you don't possess me because you can't give me what I want. I can hold you loosely. I can hold you loosely. Give the big tip. You know, share, be generous, be kind, because it goes against that deeper desire to claim from money what it cannot give. It is an expression of thankfulness for what we have. And it may introduce us to the, another pleasure, not the pleasure of what money gives, but the pleasure of blessing others, the pleasure of giving. Now, those are all good applications, I think. I wrote them, so I think they're good. But you might think, hmm, you know, easier said than done. Telling me to be content doesn't make me feel content. (laughs) Telling me to be thankful, hmm, doesn't make me a thankful person. Telling me, you know, I should be worshipful doesn't make me worshipful. There is one more piece. The beginning of wisdom and the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is to fear God. Biblical wisdom involves a Godward orientation. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes involves God becoming bigger and we becoming smaller, that we know our place. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Know your place before a big God. It's the wisdom of Job. After all of his suffering, after all of his questions, God finally appears and basically says, and who are you to question me? I'm a big God, you're a small person, know your place, and Job is silenced. Let your words be few. God must become bigger, we must become smaller, because we need a big God. We need a God that is bigger than our treasures, bigger than our questions, bigger than our problems, bigger than our lives. We need a big God. And the rest of the Bible fills in that picture of this big God, this grand, powerful, glorious, merciful, loving God. See, there is more to the story. God is in heaven, and we are on earth, and our words should be few. But for some reason, the story is this big God, transcendent and glorious, for some reason, took an interest in us, decided to enter into our broken and absurd world to people who did not have the right to speak in his presence. He came and became one of them to take on our sin, 
to be our substitute, to then forgive us, adopt us, embrace us, and secure for us an eternal home. That's the big story of the big God so that we would find perfect love and perfect wholeness and perfect joy. You see, we learn to let go of what is small and meaningless when we can hold on to what is big and eternal. How do you let go? You learn to let go of what is small and meaningless when you can hold on to what is big and eternal. The reason why I think so many of us, we can't let go is because we don't have anything else to hold on to. That's all you've got. That's all you have. And so we hold it so desperately. But when you've got something else to hold on to, you can let this go. Max Licato, a pastor and author, he tells this parable. Rhythmic waves, a little boy is on the beach. On his knees, he scoops and pats the sand with plastic shovels and into bright red buckets. Then he upends the buckets on the surface and lifts it, and to the delight of the little architect, a castle tower is created. All afternoon, he will work, spooning out the moat, packing the walls. Bottle tops will be the sentries. Popsicle sticks will be the bridges, and a sandcastle will be built. Big city, busy streets, rumbling traffic. A man is in his office. At his desk, he shuffles papers into stacks, and delegates assignments. He cradles the phone on his shoulder and punches the keyboard with his fingers. Numbers are juggled and contracts are signed. And much to the delight of the man, a profit has finally been made. All his life he will work formulating the plans, forecasting the futures. Annuities will be the centuries. Capital gains will be the bridges. And an empire will be built. Two builders of two sandcastles of two castles. They have much in common. They shape granules into grandeurs. They see nothing and make something. They are diligent and determined. And for both, the tide will rise and the end will come. And yet that is where the similarities cease. For the boy sees the end while the man ignores it. Watch the boy as the dusk approaches. As the waves near, the wise child begins to clap. There's no sorrow, no fear, no regret. He knew this would happen. He is not surprised. And when the great wave breakers crash into his castle and his masterpiece is sucked into the sand, he stands and smiles. He smiles and picks up his tools and quietly goes home. The grown-up, however, is not so wise. As the wave of years crash on his castle, he is terrified and mortified. He hovers over the sandy monument to protect it. He blocks the waves from the walls he has made. Salt water soaked and shivering, he snarls at the incoming tide. It is my castle, he defies. The ocean need not respond. Both know to whom the sand belongs. I don't know much about sandcastles, but children do. Watch them and learn. Go ahead and build, but build with a child's heart. When the sun sets and the tide takes, salute the process of life. 
take your father's hand and go home. You see, when you have a father to hold on to, when you have a home to go to, you can play in the sand, build your castles, and then let it go. We learn to let go of what is small and meaningless when we can hold on to what is big and eternal. So take your father's hand. Take your father's hand and go home. This is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how foolish we often are trying to squeeze life from that which cannot give it, trying to find satisfaction on dead-end roads. Lord, teach us to see the limitations of all these things, indeed meaningless, vanity. And yet, Lord... Some of it is meant to be enjoyed. These are good gifts. Sushi was meant to taste good. Snow forts were meant to be fun. Lord, give us the gift to enjoy what we have, that we might give you thanks, that we might recognize your kindness upon our lives, and to also recognize that these do not give us what only you can. So, Lord, teach us to hold them loosely and to hold you tightly, to let go of what is temporary, to hold on to what is eternal, to let go of that which cannot satisfy so that we might cling to you who would fill our souls till the end of time. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.